الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والذين جاهدوا فينا لنهدينهم سبلنا وقال الله تعالى في آية أخرى كونوا ربانيين بما كنتم تعلمون الكتاب وبما كنتم تدرسون سبحان ربك رب العزة أما يصفون وسلاما على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم Before I begin the actual text, I want to explain to all of you why I am here. But more importantly, I want to explain to all of you why you are here. I know why I am here. I don't think many of you know why you are here. Normally, we don't actually like to teach the books of the Sovv. We don't think the Sovv can be taught through books and words. The Sovv Tazkir is actually something that has to do with practice and experience and reality. So the first thing I would make clear is that you will never understand. Even at 6 p.m., you will still not understand the essence or reality of the Sovv because that is something that is only understood through practice and experience. What you will maybe have a brief glimpse into is the theory of the Sovv. Now, in any area of the world, in any area of learning, theory is quite useless without practice. Theory is only acquired for the sake of practice. Theory has only one purpose and that is to illustrate, to motivate a person to practice. Second is that uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about the Sovv in the Muslim world. This is also the Muslim world, <laughs> even if it's a former church, but in the Muslim community living in the West or in Muslim countries. That misconception can be cleared in one of two ways. One way is practice. Unfortunately, there are some people who aren't willing to engage in the practice until their misconceptions are cleared up. So the first way, and the better way, and the deeper way, and the truer way, and the nobler way, and the more sincere way to clear up the misconceptions, which is through actual practice and actual experience, some people have a mental block. And because of that mental block, they're not willing to engage in that actual practice, actual experience. So to unlock that mental block, sometimes we teach the theory. So we're going to be trying to perform a jailbreak. In other words, sometimes if you have a friend who is in jail and he's been illegally imprisoned, you may try to think of a way how to break them out of jail. So sometimes you have a Muslim whose qalb, whose spiritual heart is in the jail of their aqam. And because they are our friend, we need to break them out of that jail. In order to break them out of the jail, we have to address and look and think about the walls of the jail. Just like that, in order to break a person's spiritual heart of the jail of their intellect, we have to address their intellect. 
So I tell you openly, because I'm a very open person, I will be addressing your mind, but your target is my heart. So that's why I'm here. So I've told you why you were here, and now I've told you why it is that I'm here. The last thing I will say, uh, by way of general introduction, is that there are many different ways that I can introduce you to the personality and thought of Imam Rabbani, Mujaddad al-Fisani, Shaykh Ahmed Sirhindi, Ta'ala. What I don't want is for anyone to treat this as a purely as a university course, although I've spent way too many years of my life either studying or teaching in universities, so sometimes that comes out. <laughs> How can I explain to you that Professor Kamaluddin is hidden inside me, and no matter how much we may try to suppress him, he may sometimes come out. All right? But I don't want you to approach this topic as a merely academic exercise. We are not here just for our own intellectual erudition, for our own enlightenment. We are to learn and understand Deen of Islam. So even in terms of learning, your need should be that I'm here to learn the Deen of Islam, just like there is one branch of the Deen of Islam that teaches you how to fix the recitation of Qur'an on your tongue, that is called Tajweed. There is one branch of Deen of Islam that teaches you how to fix the feelings you should feel in your heart, that is called Tazkiyah, or later called Tasawwuf. And the ayah I recited to you when I started, Kunu Rabbaniyin. And that is the most apt ayah for this course because Imam Rabbani Rimullah is called Rabbani because he is viewed by the scholarly community as having successfully lived and embodied this ayah. Kunu Rabbaniyin, that you should become an Allahwala, a Rabwala, you should become close to Allah SWT. Bima kuntum tu'allimuna kitab by means of the Qur'an al-Kareem that you teach and the whole purpose of studying, teaching, learning Kitabullah the book of Allah SWT is to become Rabbani is to become a Rabbala and وَبِمَا كُنْتُمْ تَدْرُسُونَ and all of the dars tadris, all of the lessons and courses and workshops and things that you study and learn all of that is also to become a Rabwala and Allahwala. So that should be our niyat, that we are here trying to do amal on kunu rabbaniyin. And what better way to do amal on that than by looking at the teachings, life and teachings of a person who succeeded in that mission of Qur'an, a person who became one of the rabbaniyin, and more importantly, a person who outlined a path for us, a path for us to become amongst one of the rabbani. What these two fellows are doing, Abu Fahmina, you should not be concerned with them at all. Alright? If you can keep your focus on me and be alert and be awake, you should sit in the front. And if you're unable to do that, right, then you should shift to the back. Right? That was a glimpse of Professor Kamal Dean. I would never say that to you in the Masjid. <laughs> right? Is anybody who doesn't know Urdu, first of all, raise your hand either with pride or with shame, depending on your background. Keep it up, I just want to see, raise it higher. 
In other words, those who shouldn't know it can raise it proudly, and those who should know it should raise it with shame. Yes. All right. Okay. Every now and then, if I may slip into Urdu, you should never worry. I will always repeat what I say in Urdu in English, or I would have already have said the same thing in English, and I'm just saying in Urdu again for my own pleasure, for my own pleasure, and for the pleasure of a few of you that are here. All right, Bismillah First, I want to introduce you to the life and personality of Imam Rabbani briefly. This is not a course studying his life and mission. This is not a course in intellectual history. This is not a course in his political views. There's another way to study him that would be a more university type approach. But very briefly, you should be aware of his life. But I'm going to be selectively highlighting those aspects of his life that are relevant and pertinent to our discussion for today. So first of all, he was born in 971 Hijri which is 1564 of the Common Era. And he passed away in 1034 Hijri, or 1624 of the Common Era. In other words, he actually passed away, and this is something that some commentators have mentioned, at the Sunnah age of 63 years. And this is something that you actually find in traditional Islamic biographies, that they actually mention and record and keep track of who are those people who passed away at the age of 63 lunar years because Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam also passed away at the age of 63. This is not a major point. This point in itself does not demonstrate anything whatsoever, but it is a point that has been noted in his biography and that amounted to 60 solar years. And it's also for something for us to think about that everybody wants to live towards their WHO life expectancy of 72 and many people are eager to try to live into their 80s. Allah Sayyidina Rasulullah lived 60 years in terms of solar years and of that 20 years were in the period of the age of his Nabuat from the age of 40, well 23 from the age of 40 to 63 in terms of lunar years. Point I'm trying to make is that we should plan our life in such a way that you're going to die at 60. Don't plan your life in such a way that you're going to die at 80. And what would that, the big impact that would have on you is the way you imagine a 40-year-old person behaves, you would start behaving like that when you're 20. That is the most simple solution to the problems of the youth faced by Islam that we can offer. That you should behave like 40 when you're 20. Would you imagine to be 40? And those of you who are 30, you should behave like a 50-year-old man would. <laughs> What you think a 50-year-old man should behave like, that's how you should be behaving when you're 30. So that puts me in my mid-50s. That puts me in my mid-50s. Right? Imam Rabbanim Allah Ta'ala was born in India and he was then moved to a place called Sialkot, which is now in modern-day Pakistan, for his religious education. But the beginning of his religious education was undertaken by his father, Sheikh Abdul Ahad, who trained him in the basic sciences of Arabic, in Quran, he did hifz, he memorized Quran al-Kareem, and then he was sent to Sialkot because Sialkot was a major center of Islamic learning at that time. Imam al there concentrated on falsafa, usul, mantik, basically what we call the akli ulum, the rational sciences. And then he returned to India and he completed his study of hadith, and he also started learning zikr under his father. And I'm obviously going to be highlighting that aspect of his biography. His father was a person who was in the Chisti Silsila. These things will be explained as we go along. 
and he trained his son according to that methodology. Now, when Imam al-Bahninatai was about <coughs> 36 years old, in the year 1007, 36 years Hijri, in the year 1007, he decided to go for Hajj. What was he doing prior to this? Well, when he returned back to India, he had actually started associating with the court ulama. So this was the age of the Mughal Empire, and the Mughal Emperor used to have certain ulama scholars who would associate with him in the court. And Sheikh Ahmed Sir Hindi Rumulatala was given a position such that he would also associate with those ulama. Most famously, there was a Mullah Mubarak and his two sons, Abul Fazl and Fethi. Now, Sheikh Ahmed Sir Hindi, and they were both older than the Sheikh, and he associated with them, but then he had a breaking with one of them, Abul Fazl. Why? Because Abul Fazl had quite radically deviant Islamic beliefs. For example, he denied the need for prophethood and prophecy. He denied the existence of the Akhir. That's enough to give you an idea. And many, many other such things. Denied the need for Hajj. Felt interest was permissible. Alright? So as Abul Fazl began to change, and then his brother changed a little bit, and then the whole environment of the ulama at the court of the Mughal emperor, who was at that time Akbar, began to change. Sheikh Ahmed Sir Hindi he withdrew. When he withdrew, he made Nia to go for Hajj. When he proceeded for Hajj, he stopped in Delhi. When he stopped in Delhi, and now this is in the year 1007 Hijri, 1597 Common Era, he met a person by the name of Khaza Khwaja Sheikh Baki Billah who was a Sheikh of the Naqshbandi Sulsuna, who had migrated from Central Asia into India to teach the Sulsuna. And in fact, Sheikh Baki Billah narrates about his own self, that he received an inspiration from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to go to Delhi and to teach the Sulsana. And he was told by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he was going to get a student in India who would be a means of reviving, reforming, purifying and reviving the teachings of Islamic spirituality throughout the entire empire. And in fact, in one of his letters, he documents, he writes one of his other students that a man has come to me by the name of Ahmad in Delhi who is of such deep spiritual strength that he is going to be a lamp that will illuminate the entire world. So he had this meeting with Hazrat Baki Billah and then he associated with him, stayed with him in the first meeting for two and a half months. After the first two and a half months, he got what we call nisma in the language of the soul. Don't worry, all of this is going to be explained when we actually go through the readings with you. He got something that is called nisma. Nispa means an attachment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a detachment from sin. That is one simple way I can explain it to you for now. An attachment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a detachment from sin. So that process of being detached from sin and that process of being attached to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is called husul nisbat that is called acquiring the nisbat or the ta'luk, the connection, the relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he used to keep coming and going in the company of a shaykh. On the second visit, the shaykh bestowed upon him what we call khilafa. Khilafa means that the shaykh gave him permission to teach zikr and in fact imposed it on him. Where initially due to his humility, he didn't want to take this responsibility. So much so that the shaykh even transferred a few students to him and told him, now I'm putting these students under your guidance and care and supervision. And in the final visit that he had with the Shaykh, his Shaykh entrusted, Hazrat Khajab Baki Bilal entrusted his own sons to him. 
and told them that I am putting my own sons now under your tutelage. You will be their sheikh, not me. As the father said that I won't be their sheikh, you will be their sheikh. And then Imam Rabbani Nantla was accepted to teach the teachings of the Sawaf and this particular tariqah. And the particular teachings that he taught is what we are going to be going through in detail today. And he taught that to students who came to him from all over the world. And his students and disseminated all over the world. And you have teachings and shayukh of Sulsul Naqshbandi all over Central Asia, in the Arab world, in Iraq, Egypt, and Syria. And you even have smaller, smaller strands of Naqshbandi Sulsul in Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore. And you now have even teachings of Sulsul Naqshbandi in Sub-Saharan, Black Africa. But the major area was Persia, Central Asia, South Asia, and the Arab world. All right. Very briefly, a summary of four major areas of his life. Number one, his teachings of Tazkiyah and Tasawwuf. So he engaged in a project of very deep and wide-ranging and penetrating reform of the teachings of Tazkiyah. Few features I will highlight now. Number, and these are his views. And there are some of these are views that he feels have no space for disagreement. And some of them, they may be legitimate differences of opinion amongst different ulama about this issue. Number one, that there is no sama'a, there will be no musical audition in the soul. Number two, there is no raqs, there will be no dhikr involving dance or movement. Sometimes this is known as hadra. So I'm giving you some highlights of the distinguishing features of Imam Rabbani Nimlatal's teachings of the Sawaf. That there will be no dance or movement in zikr. Number three, zikr bil jahr. There will be no out loud zikr. There will be no zikr done as an extremely loud voice or an ecstatic manner. Number four, that extreme, what we call riyadhat or mujahadat, extreme acts of disciplining the soul, such as fasting uh, by only drinking water at the time of suhoor and water at the time of iftar and doing that repeatedly for days and days and months and months, that will not be done. Extreme acts of worship, extreme acts of going without food or drink or sleep or wearing clothing that is extremely tattered or trying to live in a state of abject poverty even though you have the means to earn, right? Such sort of quote-unquote, and I don't really like to use the word extreme, but let's say such intense, rigorous, such intense and rigorous acts will not be part of the soul. Number five, that the seekers of the soul will not try to seek what is called wajd. They will not try to seek epiphanies, ecstasies, raptures. They will not try to instill in themselves visions and experiences. They will not be chasing lights or colors. Right? Number six, that all kashf and ilham, and I will be explaining these things in more detail, all kashf and ilham is subservient to and secondary to and dependent upon and completely prescribed by the Sharia. All kashf and ilham is subservient to, secondary to, completely dependent upon and prescribed by the Sharia. The next is that the concept of wahdatul wujud as articulated by Ibn al-Arabi is absolutely and completely incorrect. The concept of wahdatul wujud both in its theory 
and in, in its particulars and in its details as outlined by Ibn Arabi is absolutely and entirely incorrect. So these are a few of the areas and obviously we're going to be doing that more in detail. Second, so I'm sort of giving you phases of his life. In the first phase of his life, when his shaykh had put this responsibility upon him to teach the sawwuf, he spent years teaching the sawwuf, writing about the sawwuf, lecturing on the sawwuf, and these were the areas that he highlighted. And these were the quote-unquote reforms that he did. Well, I wouldn't really prefer to use the word reform, because reform in English comes from the longer word reformulate. And it means to reformulate the original formula of something. Actually, Imam Abani Nurmillah was not doing that at all. He was restoring Tasawwuf to the original formula of Tazkiyah. He was restoring Tasawwuf to its original and inherently true location, which is that it falls within the boundaries of Sharia. So that's why sometimes we prefer the word renewal or restoration. Second thing that he did. This is called Ihya al-Din or Tajdeed al-Din or Ihya al-Sharia. Second aspect of his life was to revive Sharia on earth. To revive the Deen on earth. And he did this again through his teachings, through his letters. He had built up a network of students. And then he then themselves deputed people a network of Khulafa. And he used to, and all those letters are preserved, and we're going to be doing several of them today. Today we're not going to be doing the political ones, today we're doing the ones that focus on the Tasawwuf. But in other letters he actually would direct students of his how to work on the government, how to work on court officials, how to work on the elites, how to revive the deen inside of them, how to bring them towards the deen. And he began a project of renewal and revival of the deen of Islam with a particular focus on Sharia. And you will find the word Sharia comes frequently in his letters. Adherence to the law, enactment of the law of the deen of Islam. And the second word that he's going to use repeatedly, and we're going to see that as well as Nabuwa, prophecy. And does it mean that somebody becomes a Nabi? What he means by that is the teachings of the Prophet ﷺ, the way of the Prophet ﷺ, Sunnah. And this is because one of the great fitness of his time, like I mentioned to you, is that there were even some quote-unquote ulama, some people who had studied and acquired learning in Islam, had begun to deny prophecy. So he wrote an entire book on this called Ithbat al-Nubu'a, the affirmation and establishment of the reality and truth of prophethood and prophecy. And it's very similar, it reminds me of Imam al-Ghazai, when you had Ibn Sina, who came up with also a slightly skewed well, maybe more than slightly, a rather skewed understanding of prophecy, and he viewed prophethood and prophecy akin to the philosophy of the philosophers. Then Imam Allah Ta'ala raised up Imam al-Ghazali, also in Majaddid of his century, to revive the proper Islamic concept of Nabu'ah. And just like that, you had a certain group of people who had misunderstood Nabu'ah in the time of Imam al-Nabani, and Allah Ta'ala raised him up to restore the correct understanding of Nabu'ah. Number three is that he denounced a large number of bid'at, of innovations that took place in his time. And this is another workshop that I do at another time. So what we've done is one gift that we can give to all of you is I brought that audio and we will give, give it to these boys and you can download it from them in your tea breaks. You can copy it from them. Those of you who managed to bring USBs, uh, in your tea break and your lunch break and that's an entire workshop that we've given on what is bid'ah and that is not yet up actually on the website 
but we're going to release it to you today for the first time. Alright? Some bidat that were going on at the time, just to give you an idea, uh, because lest you be thinking of the way the word bidat is used today. So the way the word bidat is used today, I've discussed that in another workshop. Bidat that were going on in that time, people were making sajda to shakes and tasawwuf. People were making wudu, or drinking, sorry, the water that would be the leftover wudu of the Mashiach. So there are things, he mentions these things one by one by one. He did a complete sociological study of what was going on in the practice of the Sawaf at his time, and he singled out each and every particular thing that was against the Sharia and wrote about it, lectured about it, censored it, and tried to eliminate it from practice. So not only did he re-articulate the theory and purge the theory from concepts such as Wajud, but he also focused on the practice and he purified the practices that were prevalent at that time from all of those things that were against Shri. So the first thing was his theoretical teachings of Tazki and Tasawwuf. The second was Tajdeed and Ihya of Sharia and Isbat of Nabuwa. And the third was denouncing and eliminating Bidat in terms of practices that had fallen in uh, that the people of the Sawaf had fallen into, some of them had fallen into at that time. And the fourth aspect was a political aspect, which was his direct engagement first with the Mughal Emperor Akbar, and secondly, much more interesting with the Mughal Emperor Jahangir. Very briefly, the Mughal Emperor Akbar had actually established his own religion, which he originally called Dine Akbari, but then he decided to call it Dine Ilahi, Allah Akbar, the religion of Allah. And in that religion, uh, it started out claiming that it was a unity of all religions and respect for all religions and syncretism between Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. But it ended up becoming extremely antagonistic towards the deen of Islam. So at the first step even, in the first step, and he was aided in this formulation by two of his puppet ulama, those two brothers, Abul Fazl and Fezi. So in the first step, when he was simply forming the theology of his religion, Sheikh Amr Hindi worked actively to refute, again, both in word and in pen, the theology of that religion. But secondly, then, Akbar started changing the practices. And so, for example, he started making rules and enacting laws in India. One of his rulings was that there's no such thing as Salah. There's no Salah at all. No need for Salah. Not saying he enforced people. He didn't prohibit people to pray, but he actually publicly stated that in one now feature of Dina Ilahi is that there is no need for Salah whatsoever, no Namaz at all. He also said that there is no prophethood at all. Then he started banning things publicly. So, then, so again, so Imam Rabbani started criticizing his changing of the teachings of the practices of Dina Islam. Then the next thing Akbar did, he started banning things in the public. For example, he said that because there is no need of prophethood, so you not allow, just imagine this, you are not allowed to mention the name Muhammad sallallahu the name of the Prophet in khutbah, in Jummah. So he didn't stop people from praying, but then he said that if you, when you lead Jummah, in the Jummah khutbah, the khatib is not allowed to mention the name of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu and is not allowed to mention the name of any sahaba. So now he became more bold and he actually, although there's quote-unquote freedom of religion still, that he's letting people pray, he's dictating to them how they're going to pray Juma Salah. This is what I'm trying to tell you, what level it had reached in this society. 
that he had gotten so many corrupt people and corrupt scholars who had ascribed to this crazy religion of his that there is no need for prophecy to such a level that he tried to enact a rule across the entire Mughal Empire of South Asia that on any Friday and every Friday no khatim can even say the name of Sayyidina Rasulullah in the khutbah. Allah This is to give you an idea of the level that things had reached. Then lastly, he started changing the laws of the land which previously, under previous Muslim Mughal emperors, had been according to Sharia, such as gambling had been prohibited, Akbar made it legal. Drinking was forbidden, Akbar made drinking legal. So he started changing the laws of the land. This was the state that was reached, and this is very much underemphasized by the very dry and non-Muslim academic treatments of this time, where sometimes they tried to demonize Imam Abdullah is somebody who was, you know, in their eyes backward and was rolling back the quote-unquote progress that Akbar had initiated. So these, this was the level of what was going on. Okay, Imam Abdullah tried his best, um, but Allah Taala gave him a real opening when there was a shift from the Emperor Akbar to the next Emperor, which is the Emperor Jahangir. This is in the year 1014 Hijri and 1605 Common Era. So this means that Imam al-Rabani at this time is 33 years in terms of lunar years and 31 years old. So when he was 31 years, uh, 43 years solar and 41 years old in terms of Common Era years. So when he was 41 in our sense of keeping track, Jahangir became Emperor. Now Imam Rabani viewed this as an opportunity. And he had a massive mobilization effort. And his letters document how he mobilized not just his own students, but he wrote letters to all ulama in all of India. But the, not every alam, many ulama all across India, be they his students or not, and told them to work with the local officials. Because many of the local, in fact, the overwhelming majority of local officials had remained in the deen of Islam. And they had not ascribed to the deen Allahi. In fact, one historian has mentioned that only 20 people actually followed this religion of deen Allahi in terms of true believers of that false religion. But because Akbar had used the apparatus of the Mughal state, a lot of things had been enacted upon people who didn't believe in them and didn't agree with them. So the second the search was made to Jahangir, Sheikh Ramadan tried to ignite all of those people who were unhappy at all of the rules that Akbar had initiated and who were not in any way even sympathetic in the slightest of sense to Dina Eloi. And he was extremely successful in this for the first six years of the rule of Emperor Jahangir. And you can say it really a complete rollback and a complete eradication of all of Akbar's Dina Elahi policies was established by through the instigation of Imam Rabbanu but then there was another setback that was sent by Allah SWT that Jahangir married Nur Jahan. Yes, this is in the year 1020 uh, that he married a woman by the name of Nur Jahan. And it's reported by some historians that she was of a Shidi background and she won him over. This is, you know, really history that women have been responsible for the rise of many men many times in history, and also there have been times in history where women have been responsible for the downfall of men. So Jahangir, who for six years had been, at least to a relative extent, 
a proper Muslim or practicing Muslim had rolled back all of the teachings of the Mughal and Prakbar, had re-allowed all the proper ulama in all the proper positions when he got married to this woman and it, according to the historians it's partly due to her overwhelming beauty she, and he was so enamored of her that he gave up all decisions to her and she was a woman who was under the influence of the wrong type of people and another thing that happened at this time was that now this other group sees this opportunity which were the false practitioners of the Sawaf, whom in these six years Imam Rabbani also had managed to roll back all of their bidat, all of their incorrect conceptions. So multiple powers who had been kept at bay for the first six years of Jahangir's rule, when he got married to Nur Jahan, they seized that opportunity. And they started uh, poisoning Jahangir specifically against this entire network that had been developed by Imam Rabbani Abdullah. So much so that in the year 1028 Hijri, 1619 Common Era, Emperor Jahangir imprisoned Sheikh Amitsar Hindini Multani, kept him in jail for one entire year. Alhamdulillah, even though he was in jail for one year, he managed to continue his work of writing letters and supervising the work of renewal of the deen from the jail. After one year, however, interestingly, Emperor Jahangir released Imam Rabbani Namtana and released him with great embarrassment to himself and a lot of forgiveness and with great apology and he decided he wanted to make amends and he asked him and he offered him that you can either return home or I can keep you here with me in the court so Imam Anubhanta chose that let me stay in the court for a few years and then when he lived in the court for a few years he was able to complete his project of the complete renewal and revival of Deen of Islam in the Mughal Empire and this paved the way for the next phase in Mughal history which is Aurangzeb who for us is remembered as Aurangzeb the Great and by their history books is Aurangzeb the Terrible because he completely brought everything back onto Sharia and completely enacted all of the laws back onto the laws of the Deen of Islam and then as I had mentioned to you earlier the Imam al-Bani he passed away in the year 1034 Hijri or the year 1624 Common Era, in other words, four to five years after he was released from jail. All right. Now we're going to begin. I think this is your packet, so take this out. And uh, I see you've not set this up properly. Now what I'm going to be doing with you is we're going to be going to the Maktubat. So let me explain a little bit, right, uh, about this text. The Maktubat is in three volumes. It's originally written in Persian. Persian was actually the language of the Mughal court. And Persian was the language that was used by the ulama who were Muslim in Mughal India. And you may be surprised as to why this was in Arabic. That is a longer history of the relationship between the Persian and the Mughal Empire. They, all the ulama knew Arabic and the new Persian and the new Urdu. And all three languages were used by all of the ulama in South Asia. But in terms of their personal correspondence, they continued to correspond with them personally in Persian. And you find this as well in the great Persian ulama, such as Imam al-Ghazari Ta'ala. Some of you may have been there in Birmingham. That letter that he wrote to his student was also originally written in Persian. So this is an English translation of these letters. The letters are called Maktubat. Maktub literally means that which has been penned down and it is a word that is used for letter. And these letters have been published in the Persian original in three volumes. So the volume numbers 
right? You will see sometimes at the top there's a volume number, and that is referring to the original Persian, which is three volumes. The Persian word for volume is daftar. So this is daftar awwal or volume one. Those letters in the Persian original were not really arranged according to subject topic, right? This translator, I'm unsure whether he translated it from the Persian original or whether he translated it from an Urdu translation. There are Urdu translations and there's a complete Arabic translation of uh, the Persian letters. And there's only partial English translations. There are two partial English translations <coughs> that I'm aware of. One is this one that is in front of you. And a second, which is better but more difficult. Uh, better in the sense that it has been translated by a living Sheikh of the Naqshimani Sosa, Sheikh Muhammad Majuddin Rakatim lives in Lahore. He's translated all of volume one. But it's more difficult uh, because his English is quite Shakespearean. It's really very high English. He's tried to capture the high eloquent Persian prose using high eloquent English prose. And especially you people, uh, the way you talk uh, gives us the impression that your English is not as eloquent or as high uh, as that, and you would be more confused. So we chose to go with this translation because this translation is much more readable. What I've selected for today is specifically few of the, the vast majority of those letters are about the teachings of the souls. And I've selected a few of them to go over with you today. My own feeling of this text is this is not a text that you would be able to read and understand on your own. And in fact, this is a text that very few of the letters could even be taught in such a format to such a gathering. So I've selected those letters that I feel that could generally be taught to you, uh, given your varied background. Uh, and inshallah, we're going to try to teach all of them to you. In the event that I'm not able to teach all of this to you, and actually looking at it now in front of me, it's actually quite a lot. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you, obviously I know, uh, that all of you will definitely read it and after what I say you will be doubly likely to read it uh, but I would suggest that you shouldn't read it on your own you will not be able to understand it but there is a hope that by the time we're done inshallah you will have actually hopefully acquired enough of an understanding of Imam Rabbanatai's thought that you may be actually be able to understand uh, if there is any leftover uh, by the end of the time alright so that's without any further ado then, I want to begin. Uh, and I have also a prepared few pages of notes uh, to try to teach you some of the letters that I have not selected because they were so difficult that if you had read them, even if I taught you them from the text, it would have been too difficult. But I tried to summarize them. All right, now this, uh, and I will also tell you, I mean, not everything uh, the translator has written in introduction to this text. I don't necessarily personally agree with all of his analysis or conclusions in that introduction. Alright. With all of these disclaimers now out of the way, let us begin. So open up to page 173. Here I will just show you uh, that first you have an italicized three or four lines. This is the translator's own summary of the letter. So there's not the words of Sheikh Ahmed Srandin It is the translator's own summary of what the letter contains. Alright? And the regular text, which is non italicized text, that is the letter. All right. And I'm going to be changing a little bit. When I read it to you, I will sometimes change uh, the English. All right? Okay. Humanity has been created to serve Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is kindled in the heart of a human being, 
whether in the beginning of their spiritual journey or during the course of it, the purpose of that love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to disentangle, disconnect, disengage that human being from all things other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To disentangle and disengage the heart of that human being from all things in his heart that are ghairullah. So there are some terms I want you to pick up here. The first word he used here is saluk. Saluk, spiritual journey. Saluk is an Arabic word which means journey. The person who is traveling on this, sorry, saluk is an Arabic word which means journey. And it can also mean the path. The journeying path or the path of the journey. And the person who is traveling or journeying on this path, they are called a saluk. So the word saluk was used from the early period also as a word for tasawwuf and tazkiyah. Because it is viewed as a path from our connection to Allah, moving towards the connection, uh, sorry, move from our connection to the world, moving on a path, moving away from our connection to the world, towards a connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, in other words, you should know ubudiyyah. Ubudiyyah in Arabic, abdiyat in Persian or Urdu. So man has been created to serve Allah, he's talking about ubudiyyah. Now that's clearly in Quran. وَمَا jinna wal insa illa so he's trying to mention this, and you will find that really Muhammad Rabbani, his letters are addressed almost exclusively to ulama, and so they are people who knew Quran and Hadith. And this is the feature of classical Islamic writing that many times people of us today find a bit jarring. And you wonder that why aren't they quoting the Quran more, why aren't they quoting the Hadith more? They are actually engaged in the conversation, and the discourse is based on a presumption of deep understanding and knowledge of Quran and Hadith. It's understood that anybody who read the word abdiyat immediately will think of that verse, right? Now because we, in this day and age, don't have that level of knowledge and awareness of Quran and Hadith, then what happens is, is that we, you know, we need those footnotes. We need somebody to show us the underpinnings of these teachings in the Quran. So I'll be trying to do that for you as we go along. Amidali, we'll just do it in the break. Amidali? Amidali? Alright, love is never an end in itself. This itself is a major teaching. You can see Imam al-Rabani has had very fascinating views in the soul. Love for Allah SWT is not even an end in itself, it is a means. What is the end? The end is ubudiyya. And this is what he writes in many places, that the goal and objective of a human being is to become the abd of Allah SWT even love for Allah Santa, as noble as an emotion it is, and it's a Quranic emotion. That indeed those who have iman are extremely intense in their love for Allah Santa, but that love is not without purpose. That love has a purpose and a mission. That love is to bring a person to ubudiyah, to absolute servanthood and slavehood to Allah Santa. And what Imam Rabbani is doing, he's targeting with his mind people who claim to love Allah subhanahu wa the false Sufis of his age and the false Sufis throughout the ages, but they don't follow Sharia. And people who claim to love Allah subhanahu wa think that their love for Allah subhanahu sometimes somehow makes them above and beyond the need for Sharia. So always remember that he has two things in mind. One is a general articulation of what he views the Sauf to truly be, and secondly a rebuttal of the false theories and false practices of the false Sufis of his time. Right? So this is why I'm saying that love is never an end of itself. It is only a means to realize servanthood ubudiyya. One becomes a true servant of Allah when one is freed from the love and bondage of this world. 
So you're talking about love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala versus love for Ghayrullah. That was the other than God, love for Ghayrullah. And then you're talking about love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala versus love for the world. Then you're talking about slavehood to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as opposed to slavehood to the world. This can mean slavehood to the nafs also because nafs is part of the dunya. It can be a servant of our own desires, a slave of our own desires, a slave of our own wishes, a slave of materialism, a slave of the material world, a slave of the search for fame, popularity, celebrity, whatever it is, all of that comes into dunya. Nafs, dunya, makhluk. So you will find, and this is a very important aspect of tasawwuf, and tasawwuf is designed for not for the pious person. Tasawwuf is designed for the person who has been stuck in sin and wants to reach taqwa. That is the journey. The sawf is that person who is the slave of their nafs, wants to become slave of Allah. Has love for the world, wants to have love for Allah. Has love for ghayrullah, unlawful ghayrullah in their heart. And wants to trade that and exchange that and leave that for the sake of love for Allah SWT. And that is the path and that is the journey. That is what the sawf is. Now he says that love is nothing but a means for an exclusive devotion to Allah. So exclusive here is ikhlas. Mukhlisin Allahuddin. And how is a person going to get that khulus and that ikhlas and that sincerity and purity that everything they do and say and think and feel is only for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? They're going to do that by getting love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when the love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes into their heart, that is what is going to make them true and sincere. The last stage in the Sufi way, the last stage in Suluk. So what is the end of that journey that is called, sorry, the last stage in Wilayat. This is, it. So it's not proper English here. It's not Sufi way. The last stage of Wilaya. That's not the Sufi way. Wilaya, I'll explain to you. Wilaya is a particular reality that is attained along the process of Saluk. This is a word that again is used in Quran. Allah Ta'ala has this word in Quran. Awliyaullah. Allah inna awliyaullah la khawfun alayhim walahum yazanun. So who are the awliya of Allah? Awliya is the plural of wali. Wali singular, awliya, plural, it means a person who has wilaya. Alright? So wilaya, I wouldn't call it the Sufi way, it's a Quranic reality. What is the end of wilaya? What does it mean to be a wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? He says it's to be an abd. There's nothing beyond that. And again, he's targeting people that there is no rank or maqam that you can attain that puts you outside or past or beyond being the servant and slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In other words, the beginning is not I'm an abd and then I become a wali. No, the end of wilayat is ubudiyat. The highest stage is to be an abd. And this is why in tashahud and salah, what do we say? Ashadwanna Muhammadan abduhu. First and foremost, abduhu wa rasulun. So the greatest achievement of Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam, even greater than the fact that he was the greatest prophet of Allah, is that he was the greatest abd of Allah. Even greater than the fact that he was the greatest prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that he was the greatest abd of Allah and that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us in salah to first testify to his greatness in ubudiyya. So that is the highest stage. There is nothing greater than ubudiyya. There is nothing greater than being the servant and slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So beyond that there is no other stage. At this stage, at this stage, when a person reaches this end stage, of absolute ubudiyah, the highest stage of wilaya, that person, so again I wouldn't use the word mystic, he keeps altering between the word Sufi and mystic. Mystic is a word in English that has a lot of other connotations, right? 
I hear the word mystic, I'm thinking magic, I'm thinking spells, I'm thinking New Age spirituality, I'm thinking Buddhism, I'm thinking Hinduism. I'm not thinking Abdiyat. I'm not thinking Ubudiyya. Right? Okay, at this stage, at that last stage of Walai, which is Ubudiyya, that person finds no comparison between them and their Lord. Forget that they think they and Allah are one. The complete opposite. Wahdatul Wajud is presented as if it is the pinnacle of achievement. Imam Rabbanat is saying is the pinnacle achievement is what he's later going to call absolute farq. The doctrine of absolute farq. Absolute distinction, differentiation, separation, difference. Absolute, no comparison. There's nothing incomparable. That me and Allah SWT are completely incomparable. I won't even say that, okay, I have a little bit of generosity and he is Al-Kareem. I won't even... You know, it's like when we do in math. Those of you who have studied math would know that one billion over infinity equals zero. So Allah Spantal's generosity is infinity, is Al-Kareem. No matter how generous you may be, it's incomparable, it's zero compared to the generosity of Allah Spantal. This is the end. Why am I mentioning this? Because sometimes along the way, a person when they are trying, as the Prophet taught us in Hadith, to adorn ourselves with those attributes of Allah SWT that we're supposed to adorn ourselves with, a person may feel that I'm merciful and my mercy is a drop of Allah's mercy, but it's something comparable, it's something similar. And it's a process that is used, it's called tashbih, to understand the mercy of Allah. So that when you're kind and merciful to someone, then you understand that, okay, this is what mercy is. It helps you understand what mercy is, and that helps you understand what it means that Allah Ta'ala is ar-Rahman. But at the final stage of wilayat, the person dispenses with all of that. There is no tashbih. There is no similarity, there is no comparison. They find themselves absolutely incomparable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is wanting in everything. Again, this is Quran. Ya nas antumul fuqara'u ilallah. That, O oh, humanity, you are completely, absolutely, utterly needy and dependent on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You are faqir. So this is what he finds. The end is abd and faqir. This is the end of life. He finds that I'm faqir. Whereas Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ghani, al-ghani al-hamid, he is absolutely self-sufficient. Allah SWT is absolutely independent. I am completely dependent. Allah SWT has no needs whatsoever. I am just a creature of <coughs> need and need. I am a living embodiment of need and dependency on Allah SWT. And Allah SWT is mustaghni in his that, that, in his essence, in his own being, as well as his sifat, as well as in his attributes, and also in his application of attributes. Sometimes people say that, oh, you know, Allah SWT, how can he be khalik? before he created anything. That is a misunderstanding. That is suggesting that Allah Ta'ala needs an object of creation to become khaliq. He doesn't. He never needed makhluk to be khaliq. He was al-khaliq before he quote-unquote created anything. Alright? Here that will bring us into discussions of theology and kalam, but these are the things. And actually I would really tell you, I mean in these days it's a big vogue in England to have Akidah courses. Really our Akidah and the path of Tasawwuf, we get our understanding of Allah Ta'ala from Tasawwuf. And our understanding of Aqidah was that you should study Kitab al-Iman in the Sahih of Muslim and Riyadh al-Salihin and Mishkat and the books of Hadith. And you should understand what Iman is and you should understand the articles of Iman. But as far as for discussions into the nature of the essence of Allah Taala's attributes, you don't, we don't go to the Ashari's for that. We take that from the Mashaikh of the Sof because they're the ones who actually understood Allah Taala the best. They may have, the theologians may be able to explain Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the rational intellects the best, but the ones who have understood Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the best are these mashayikh of the self. Right? So, 
Allah says, absolutely self-sufficient and his essence as well attributes. So that person sees nothing common between his being and Allah's being. Forget waqdat. Forget unity of being. There's nothing common between his being and Allah's being. Complete separation. Complete difference. Sees nothing in common between his sifat and Allah Ta'ala's sifat. Between his attributes and Allah's attributes. And sees nothing in common between his acts and Allah's acts. Between his af'al and Allah Ta'ala's af'al. As opposed to when people who used to be intoxicated in the of Zud, they used to feel that my walking is Allah's walking and my talking and Allah's talking. Right? Saying, so no, that your acts and Allah Ta'ala's acts are completely different. He even avoids saying that the world is a shadow of Allah. And this is a later letter, and I don't think I said, I think I took it out, we're not going to do that. But in one of his letters, he talks about how people have been of three views. And maybe I'll just do that right now. And that is that number one, that the world and God, are, the world, the dunya and Allah SWT are the same. Matatubajudi says that's wrong. Second, that the dunya is a shadow of Allah SWT. That the creation, in the sense that it reflects the Creator, right? And that is definitely there in the Quran. Allah SWT talks about his signs. The signs of the creature in the creation. The signs of the khalik and makhluk. So some understood those signs. They took it a bit level further. And they viewed that, that this world is a shadow. It's a zil in Arabic. It's a shadow of the creator. And the third view, which is the one that Imam al-Bani articulates and he ascribes to and he propagates, is that no, the world is not even a shadow. It's completely nothing compared to Allah SWT. It's not even a shadow. It bears no resemblance. Not even a shadow-like relationship. It has no relationship. It's complete farq. Allah is Allah and dunya is dunya and that's it. So he, then in, a, in an other long letter, he mentions these three views and mentions the arguments and obviously refutes the arguments of the first two and puts forth arguments for this third view. So that's why he's saying that the end of wilayat, and this is going to be a theme that you're going to see, because what Imam Rabbi is going to articulate that there were some noble Sufis who sometimes said certain things. And he actually says, for him, Ibn Arabi doesn't condemn Ibn Arabi to kufr as some other later ulama did. He views that Ibn Arabi will go into Jannah. He views he was mistaken. He was erroneous. And why? Because he didn't reach the end of wilayat. He got stuck on the way. And when you get stuck on the way, you make mistakes. And he's going to articulate a whole way to make sure people don't get stuck on the way by changing the whole nature of the soul. He actually changes the whole path of the Sawaf to make sure people never get stuck on the way again. But here the person who reaches the end, who didn't get stuck on the way, who reaches the end, even avoids saying that the world is a shadow of Allah. For that implies comparison and analogy. And Allah's fountain is beyond any comparison and analogy. He simply affirms that Allah is Khalik and that he himself is makhluk beyond that he claims nothing. He says, that, that's my marifat. Allah is Khalik, I am makhluk, that's my marifat. Marifat I means that is my deep understanding of Allah. That is my intimate knowledge and awareness of Allah SWT, that He is my Khalik and I am His Makhluk and there is no comparison analogy at all between that Khalik and Makhluk. Some people are led in the course of their spiritual journey on the way to the belief in one actor. They see no actor other than Allah SWT. So this is He's now referring to one aspect of Wahdud al-Wajud that they felt that Allah SWT was the only actor. Some of you may have heard this, that there are two words they use for this in Arabic. One is called fa'il, one is called kasib. Right? The doer and the perpetrator of acts. So obviously, Allah Spalta is the ultimate doer of everything. Right? But these people took it to a further level and they felt that Allah Ta'ala was the perpetrator of everything. It's difficult to explain this concept. What is this slight difference between fa'il and kasib? So obviously, Allah Ta'ala alone is what we call the fa'il al-haqiqi. He is the true fa'il. 
He ultimately does whatever he intends. That's what he says in Quran. That's why Allah Ta'ala says in Quran in one eye, he says that it's not you who shot the arrow, it's I who shot the arrow. Right? It's why in Hadith and Bukhari and Muslim, there's Hadith Qudsi that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says that my servant draws near to me with that which I have made obligatory upon him. Then he continues to draw near to me with the nawaf of that which I have made optional on him until I become the eyes through which he sees, the ears through which he hears, etc. So what does that mean? That meant that at the ultimate level, Allah Subhanahu is the ultimate doer. But in terms of perpetration of acts, in terms of cusp, you actually do the things that you do. Right? The people who were in Wadud al-Wajud, they took it to that level that you don't even actually do. They would say, you're not raising the cup. Allah Subhanahu is raising the cup. Right? That's because they felt it. The person and Allah Subhanahu were all one and the same thing. Right? Here so, he's saying that the mystics, and again I want you to word the mashayikh of the Naqshabandi Salsalah, they know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the creator of acts, khaliqa af'al. But he's not the kasibi af'al, he's not the doer of the acts. This is again a very delicate area of theology, and this is not really my purpose today to discuss this with you. But creation of act means that the act, you can view it like this, I'm simplifying it a little bit. But the ability to raise this act, let's put it this way, the act of raising the cup and drinking. It involves certain things. It involves an ability on my part physically. It involves an intention of my part to raise it. It involves the ability to drink. All of these things have been created by Allah Subhanahu The ability to intend to touch the cup, the ability to touch it, the ability to lift it, the ability to bring it, the ability to drink it. All of that has been created by Allah Subhanahu But it's been done by me. Right? That's all I would sort of say on this one. The doctrine of one actor, however, the viewer that know Allah Subhanahu is the doer of acts, is the root cause of zandaka, which means blasphemy or heresy. I will explain through an example. Suppose that a juggler sitting behind a screen conjures up forms of some objects and produces in them some wonderful movements. Those who have penetrating eyes know that the creator of the movements and the forms is the man behind the screen. This is the famous puppet example, right? This is really the puppeteer, or he is using an example of the juggler, right? Hence, they say that it is the forms which move and not the juggler. And they are right in what they say. The assertion of one actor is an act of intoxication, sukr. Okay, this is a term he's going to use repeatedly. Sukr is, sometimes obviously the word is used, sukran is used for inebriation on liquor and alcoholic beverages. But it's also used for a state of intoxication that sometimes comes in a person due to spiritual exercises. Sometimes there were people who, because of their engagement in dhikr, they reached the state of sukkah. So I'm going to explain this in detail later. But basically what happened was, I'll explain briefly right now, that there were certain people who their understanding of tasawwuf was that they had to negate their nafs. Yes, that's obviously true. Nafs amara, we have to negate that nafs. But they took it so far that they tried to negate their own will, their very being itself. When they negated their own will, and their own being itself, such that then Imam al-Bani will explain that it was just a matter of perception. That the only thing they were able to perceive or be aware of was Allah subhanahu wa Let's put it that way. They negated their own self-awareness. They negated their own self-perception. They negated the perception and awareness of everything around them in the world. So that the only thing that remained was their zikr. The only thing that remained was their awareness and perception of Allah subhanahu wa 
So when a person goes into such a deep level of zikr, I can give you an analogy like a dream. Imagine you have a dream, let's say you have a nice dream. So a nice dream would be you had a dream in which you were in Makkah Mukarramah and you were making tawaf and you were sitting after tawaf and you were looking at the Kaaba and this dream goes on and on and on, right? In dream time, in real time it may just have been a few blinks of your eye, right? When you wake up, the second you wake up, now you're physically awake, which means that you are no longer physiologically, neurologically dreaming, you are now awake. However, for the first few moments, maybe for the first few minutes, there is a lingering feeling. You still feel as if you're in Makkah It will take you some time, either moments or minutes, depending on the intensity of the dream and the intensity of the dreamer, right? It will take you some moments or minutes to reorient and realize that you're not in Makkah but you are unfortunately rather in your room in East London, right? It will take you a few moments. During those few moments until you have that realization, you will be in a state of intoxication. In other words, for those first few moments where you still think you're in Makkah Mukarma, even though in your room, right? For those first few moments, that is sucker. Right? So he's translated literally intoxication because that's the way the word is normally translated when you're talking about the usage of this Arabic word for being drunk in alcohol and liquor. But when it's used for when you move from one state to another, and in the, when you first make that transition, the first moments or minutes of the second state, you still think you're in the first state. So what happens? So I give you an example of being in a dream and coming out of that dream. Why did I give that example? Because I was trying to draw the analogy of being in a state of dhikr and coming out of dhikr. So imagine a person goes deep into dhikr, and that Allah Taala has mentioned in the Quran, that make dhikr of the name of your Rabb and enter a state of tabattal. That's a state, that's a hal. Tabattal means to be completely oblivious to all other than Allah and to be completely aware of Allah. That's what Allah brought it twice in ayah with tabattal ilayhi tabdila. So when a person enters that state, right, like the Sahaba who was praying Salah entered that state, he was oblivious to the fact that he was shot. Now when he leaves that state, when he exits the Salah, then he will become aware now. He will then all, and then he will start feeling the pain. Then he did start feeling the pain. After he left the Salah, then maybe there were some lingering moments when he was still in that state of absorption in Allah, but then he would first then become aware of the blood. Maybe his sight would make him aware of that. Then he would be aware of the arrow. Then he would start feeling the pain. He would start feeling the pain that he didn't feel in his Salah. So that's a change from one state to another. And it's a change in awareness and perception. A person was so absorbed in the worship and remembrance of Allah that their awareness and perception was numbed. A person was so absorbed in the worship and remembrance of Allah that the awareness and perception became zero. Sometimes a person may reach such a state in their ibadah and their zikr. When they do that, however, when they break their ibadah, when they come out of that ibadah and zikr, Gradually, or sometimes instantly, depending again on the person, that perception and awareness will be restored. So what happened now is this person, when they entered the state of zikr, where they lost all awareness of everything that was other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for a moment when they came out of that zikr, even though they were maybe looking around them, but they just, because in their mind everything was Allah, so just like when you open up your room and you thought your room was Makkah, when they opened up their eyes and looked at the world, they thought the world was Allah. When they regained their perception and awareness of the world, they thought the world was Allah. When they regained their perception and awareness of themselves, they thought themselves were Allah. 
He's explaining in, in the sense, and I'm doing some other letters that are coming a bit later. He's explaining how did people arrive at this doctrine of Watudubaju. Again, understand, explaining is not justification. It's an incorrect doctrine. But the question arises, right, that how did, why did a person think that? Why did a person think he was Allah? And these people who were practicing dhikr, they weren't thinking they were Allah because they were trying to come up with a new religion or they had a new theology or a new aqidah. It was because of sakr. It was a state of intoxication. It was a state of what is intoxication? Intoxication means you cannot perceive reality, right, properly. Your perception becomes skewed. This is one, one of the many, many reasons why it's forbidden in Islam. You end up losing your grip on haqiqah, on reality. So what happened was, is that person, there are two realities. One is the haqiqat of Allah SWT, and one is the haqiqat of the world. So this person negated the haqiqat of the world, and it was so lost in the haqiqat of Allah. So their perception of Allah was correct. But their perception of the world became skewed. That's why it's not, that's why it's not kufr. This is Imam Rabbani's beautiful way of explaining why Ibn Arabi's view was not kufr. Because it's not, he doesn't view it as the perception of Allah was skewed. His perception of the world was skewed, that he perceived the world to be Allah. Just like when you wake up from the dream, you thought your room was Makkah. Alright? Alright. Don't worry, we have given you a time for questions and answers as well. Right? And I'll probably, uh, what I will do is I will take probably the last five minutes of every session for questions on that session. But I've kept a whole session at the end for Q&A. Right? In which, uh, so as I should mention that, so as and when you have questions, you should keep a little running list of your questions. Uh, because obviously you're not going to be able to remember. And I'm just picking up. Those of you who are there in Birmingham, you know what's coming next after the tea break. I'm just gradually. I basically entered second gear, right? So we're going to be picking up speed and steam as we go along and you will hopefully forget the questions you have now. Not hopefully, you're going to end up forgetting the questions you have now and I want you to remember them. So as you have questions on the text or when I'm commenting on the text, you should write them down. And we'll take a few of them at the end, but we'll take the bulk of them uh, at the conclusion of the whole day. Right? Okay, so let's go back to this. So this is the issue that I was explaining to you, this notion of intoxication, right? Means the assertion of one actor that belief of Bhattabhaju is an act of a person who had a skewed perception of reality. And that perception was actually skewed due to zikr. You see, you can get a skewed perception around due to liquor, due to drugs, due to dreaming, due to sleepwalking. And you can actually get a skewed perception of the world due to zikr. And that's not entirely a bad thing. <laughs> This view is a bad thing, but otherwise, otherwise having the skewed perception of the world sometimes saves you from being attracted to the world, right? Okay. The truth is, now getting back to this, let me get back to this. The truth is that there are many actors. I'm an actor, you're an actor, everyone in this room is an actor, has agency, does things, does things. But the creator of those acts, that is only one, that is Allah Spanta. To the same category from the doctrine of one being, so the one actor is one aspect of one being. It is a product of intoxication and ecstasy. What does it mean doctor of one being meant that they negated their own existence? So they felt that the only thing existed was Allah. In other words, let me show you it. If, I, if, if you take the position that in an absolute sense the only thing that exists is Allah, 
And then secondly, I tell you, my finger exists. So you would say, well, your finger must be Allah. Because the only thing that exists is Allah. So this is how they came up with this notion of the Wujud, that they found that the only thing that exists is Allah SWT. Again, this was also a skewed perception. They turned off their awareness of the existence of Ghairullah and Zikr. And they weren't able to turn it back on. They turned off their awareness of the existence of Ghairullah in their Zikr. And they weren't able to turn it back on. They turned their eyes back on, but they couldn't turn their awareness back on. Okay. Here, so this is an incorrect. Now, Imam, Imam Rabbana, Mr. Hindi, Mujaddada Al-Fasani, is mentioning. The criteria for the correctness of all ideas of the Sobhav, and won't I use the word mystical, all of the concepts and ideas of the Sobhav, how will we know whether they're correct or not, is that they must agree with the clear truths of the Sharia. They must be in conformance with Sharia. If they diverge a hair's breadth, they are to be sure a product of intoxication. So somebody said, how do I know? Is this a true idea of the self? Is it a true understanding of Allah Ta'ala that came to me in zikr? Or is this a false understanding that has come to me in my zikr? This is very easy, Shaykh. You will just use this Shaykh, it means Quran and Sunnah. And if your understanding deviates from the Quran and Sunnah, even one hair's breadth, then it means that whatever understanding came to you in zikr that is a wrong understanding, you should make tawbah from it, you should flee it, you should disavow yourself from it. And if the understanding is not against Sharia, then it's fine. Alright. The truth is what has been established by the ulama. So where am I going to get Sharia? Not from Oliya, from ulama. And this is one common theme of Imam Banyatullah's writings. That the Oliya are dependent on ulama for understanding of Sharia. Just as the ulama are dependent upon the Oliya for the understanding of Allah. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. It's a reciprocal relationship. So who, the truth is what has been established not by the words of the, of the ecstatic utterances and ecstasies and raptures of the people of the Sawaf. That's not the truth. The truth is what has been established by the ulama of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Okay? All else is blasphemy and heresy and the product and result of intoxication and ecstasy. Right. Perfect agreement with Sharia is possibly, possible only with Ubudiyah. The only way you can have perfect agreement with Sharia is when you become the perfect Abd. So you must reach the end of Wilayat to get that Ubudiyah, to get perfect agreement in Sharia. And before that final stage, and all stages before that, there's always an element of intoxication. Until you are the complete slave of Allah, you may come up with ideas on your own. It's only and only when you become the complete servant and slave, then you can feel that your feelings and experiences in zikr are fine. Somebody put a question to Shaykh Bahá'u'lláh Naqshbanri Mullah and asked him, what is the purpose of saluk? What's the purpose of this path? What's the purpose of these exercises? So he replied, the purpose is to know in detail what you know in brief and to perceive in vision what you know through arguments. I would rather say to, uh, you know, the word, the word vision here isn't the best to, have a, I would rather say to experience through perception or to perceive through experience what you know through argument. So there are two statements here. What does it mean? Number one, the purpose is to know in detail what you know in brief. What does that mean? 
What is it that you know in brief? So for example, you know that Allah Ta'ala's name is Al-Rahman. You know that. That He is the All-Merciful One. But what is the detailed meaning of that? What does it mean that He is Al-Rahman? What is it supposed to mean to me? What is it supposed to mean to my heart? How am I supposed to change given the fact that Allah Ta'ala is Al-Rahman? That's called to know it in detail. And that's exactly in Quran. Allah Ta'ala says in Quran, Al-Rahman Fas'al bihi khabira. Al-Rahman, know that I am Al-Rahman. He declares himself to be Al-Rahman. And says that it's not enough to just know that. It's not enough just to hear the talawat of that. Fas'al, you must go ask the details of that. You must go ask. It's not going to be elsewhere in the Quran. There's no other talawat you can do to get it. Allah Ta'ala said, Fakro. He would have said, recite and read. He would have said, ponder upon the verses that say I am Rahman. No, he said, go ask. Asal, bihi khabira. Go ask that ghairullah. Allah Ta'ala is commanding in the Quran. Go, I am a Rahman, and go ask somebody who is ghairullah, who is khabir, who is deeply aware and informed of what it means in I am Rahman. Go ask that person, and then you will understand the details of what it means in I am a Rahman. Allah Ta'ala Himself is saying this in Quran. Al Rahman, fasal bihi khabira. So it means that the path of the sawaf is that asking. The path of the sawaf is that asking. You can make niyat that I'm doing amal on fasal bihi khabir. I'm doing amal on this ayah of Quran. And everybody should be trying to do amal on every ayah of Quran. It's not a question of whether it's farther or snafil or it's wajib. Right? If Allah Ta'ala said ask, we should want to ask. Is it fard for you to ask? Will you be punished if you don't ask? No, it's not fard. You won't be asked in judgment. Did you ever ask anybody what it means? Allah Ta'ala Rahman. Did you try to get the details? You won't be punished for not doing it. It's not obligatory in that sense. But it's Quran. It's the message of Allah Taala. It's our book of Hidayah. What it means then is that you will not be a sinner, but you will be deprived of the complete Hidayah of Quran unless you ask. So saluk and tasawwuf is basically taking a person beyond the level of faraz and wajib and trying to bring them to that extra hidayah that is in Quran and has been guided to by, guided by Allah in Quran to other sources to get the rest of that hidayah. So that is to know in detail what you know in brief, okay, and to perceive in vision what you know through arguments. And this is the second thing. So for example, what does it mean? It means to experience in reality in your heart what you learn through words in your mind. For example, I can tell you using Quran that there are three words Allah Ta'ala used for nafs. Nafs al-ammara, nafs al-lawama, nafs al-mutmanna. I can give you a talk on that. I can give you examples on that. Now you would now know that there are three types of nafs and you know the description and attributes of those three types of nafs through words and arguments. But now there's a second level of knowledge. Okay, now that's intellectual knowledge. A second is to perceive inside myself which nafs I have. To perceive those attributes inside myself. I'll give you another example. Hasid. So Allah SWT said in Quran, Min hasidin hasad. So the envier, his envy has an evil. I can dis- define the word envy to you. I can give you examples of envy, right? You would understand what envy is. But unless you've never felt envy yourself, let's say there's somebody, so there may very well be somebody who has never felt envy for anybody in their life. So I would say you don't really know what hasad is until you've felt it yourself. I, no matter how I can describe it to you, that's to know it in brief, 
So note in details when you feel and experience it yourself and you have awareness and perception of those feelings and experiences. Then you'll know. Alright? So that is what the purpose of Saluk is. Okay, next line. The Shaykh did not say that the purpose, so Imam Rabbani, I, I was commenting on what the statement was, and now he's also showing you what it doesn't mean. The Shaykh did not, you know, Imam Bahaudi Naqshbani did not say the purpose of Saluk is to acquire truths beyond the truths of the Sharia. He's not saying that. It's the truths of the Sharia. What does it mean? The Sawaf does not add anything to Deen of Islam. It can never add anything to Deen of Islam. What of the Wujud is not there. It's an addition. So it cannot be part of Saluk. To Sawaf means the things that are already there to understand them better. To understand them better. It is however a fact that the person who is engaged in Tasawwuf, really the Arabic word is Mutasawwuf, would be the Arabic that we would use for mystic. The Mutasawwuf, the person engaged in Tasawwuf, receives different ideas. They think different things. They feel different feelings. They get different thoughts about Allah Subhanahu during their saluk. But when he reaches the end of those ideas disappear in the air. When he reaches the end those ideas disappear in the air. And, and later on, you know, after the heart after lunch, I'm going to be showing you that later on, Imam Imam Rabani actually comes up with another way of tasawwuf, which is called the Mujaddidi Tariqa, which saves a person from even going through these superfluous ideas. So there's one way, right? That okay, the end is Wilayat, which is Ubudiyah, but in order to get that, you have to go through a process, and during that process, some people may get superfluous ideas. The one solution to that is to make sure the person has a sheikh and a guide to guide them out of that. And I will show you how that works. And then second Imam Rabbani is later going to say that now there's another way to get at that wilayat and abdiyat that doesn't even expose you to those superfluous ideas. And he calls that, that that is the way the Prophet taught the Sahaba. So we're going to show you that after the lunch break. Alright? And he distinguishes between these two different paths. Alright? Fair. But at this point he's still talking about the first path, which is what you go through this process. Alright? Then he comes out, he then perceives the same truths of the Sharia in detail. So when the superfluous ideas leave him, he perceives the same truth that he knew in brief, he now perceives them in detail. And comes out from the narrow enclosure of reason to the open space of Kash. And this is very important. Kash is not being contrasted to Quran and Sunnah. It's a big mistake. People think that, okay, on the one hand, Quran and Sunnah say something, and then Kash says something. No. The subject matter is Quran and Sunnah. One is that I am trying to understand it using my akal, and second is I'm understanding it through kash. One is I'm understanding it through my akal, second is I'm understanding it through my kalb. Third is I'm understanding it through my own efforts, as opposed to I'm understanding it through some meaning Allah Ta'ala bestowed on my heart. That's the difference. Kash is not in any way in opposition to, or in contrast to, or in rival to Quran and Sunnah. Quran and Sunnah is deen, it's the subject matter of deen. It's a revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, revealed sources of deen. Now one can understand them on the basis of their mind, and or one can understand them on the basis of their heart. One can understand them on the basis of their own intellectual exertion and effort and brainstorming, or one can maybe receive an insight into their meaning from Allah subhanahu wa that is called kash that's also called ilham Allah subhanahu wa gives you an insight let me give you the best example that we normally give people when you want to make a decision so the deen of Islam has taught you to do two things number one use your mind brainstorm 
Exert your mind as to what is the best decision for you. But secondly, make dua istikhara. What is that? You're asking for kash. That's just kash. Kash and ilham. Ask Allah Ta'ala to inspire your heart with an insight as to the meaning of which is the best decision to you. Now you tell me. Right? So the subject matter, same subject matter. Decision. Right? Same subject matter. To go to Kuwait or not to go to Kuwait. Same subject. Right? Okay. There are two ways of analyzing that subject. Now you tell me if I give you the option that either I can give you a mind that will have the most brilliant rational analysis of all the pros and cons of that decision and then you can use that mind to make that decision or I will give you a heart that is guaranteed to get jawab of istikhara and you will get ilham and kash from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as to what the meaning of the best decision is for you and you will be able to perceive that ilham which one would you pick? If I gave you the same choice, then that here is the Quran and Hadith. I, I give you two choices again. I will give you that aqal. That is at the highest level of ijtihad. Highest level of ijtihad. Or I will give you that heart, that Allah Ta'ala will inspire that heart with what is the meaning of the Quran and Hadith. Which one would you pick? Alright, is there scope of error in ijtihad? Yes. And there is scope of error in kashf. Who checks the error in kash? That is ijtihad. The check on the errors in kash is the sharia itself. So if a person feels that I've understood a meaning, but the meaning is against sharia, then the meaning is batal. The meaning is false. Alright? Okay. Now, the problem... Okay. So what are the truths we're talking about? So you have to read this very carefully. I mean, again, like I said, you read, you read the English is clear. You could have understood certain things from this, but you have to read it very carefully. So the person who reaches the end of wilayat, which is abdiyat, now perceives the same very truth, that same subject matter of sharia, but now perceives it and aware of it in detail, whereas before he only knew it in brief. So now that detailed understanding, and it came out from the narrow enclosure of Akul, that was brief, into the detailed understanding which comes through Kashf and Ilham, through Zikr, Ibadah, Taqwa, Ikhlas. This is what Allah Ta'ala calls in Quran, Ilm Ladunni, that He gives Ilm from His own behalf to people. Okay? Alright. The Prophet, Nabi Karim Sallallahu and all the Prophets receive the same truth, the detailed ones, the complete detailed one through Wahi. Maximum detail. That is through Wahi. So he's telling a hierarchy that Ilham and Kashf is greater than Akal, but Ilham and Kashf is lower than Wahi. In other words, the Wilayat is lower than Nabuat, obviously to us, right? But it was apparently not something obvious to certain people at his time. Wilayat is lower than Nabuat. So the mystic receives the same truth through Ilham from the same source, the source... Okay, now understand this for a moment. Is not saying the wali becomes a nabi. The wali doesn't get wahi. The wali gets the hakikat of wahi. Let me explain this again. So, so let's take that example I gave you, the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How did the Prophet know the mercy of Allah? He didn't do fasal bihi khabira. He didn't go ask somebody. He didn't do that. He got that from wahi directly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
So let's just call that X. X means the detailed understanding of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Allah ta'ala has placed it in Hidayah and Allah ta'ala wants us to acquire. How did the Prophet get that X? He got it from Wahi. How does the Wali get that X? He gets it from Ilham. Got that? Okay. What was the source of that Wahi on the Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? What is the source of ilham when you do istikhara? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Doesn't mean you become a Nabi. When you do istikhara, you become a Nabi. Receiving ilham from Allah doesn't make you a Nabi. So the, but he's saying the source is the same. So look at this again. The person of the Sawaf gets the same truth through ilham directly from the same source, from the same Allah. The same Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, obviously. Okay. And the ulama, where did the ulama get it from? So the ulama, and it doesn't mean, this is not, there may be ulama who get the ilham, there may be ulama who are also awliya. But now he's separating out two, three types of activity. Three ways to get the same understanding. One is through prophetic revelation. One is through inspiration that the awliya get. And the third is the ulama, should get it through deduction from revelation of state and principle. They get them from an ilm, from their ilmi activity, from induction, from deduction, from reflection, from analysis, from tafsir, from hadith commentary, from Quranic exegesis. That, did they get the same thing? So there's three ways to get it. Three ways to get it. All right. The Prophet ﷺ receives the truth in detail and so does the person of Tasawwuf. When they reach that end stage of Balayat, they also understand. Not at the level of the Prophet ﷺ, right? The prophetic level is greater than the level of the Wali, but he also gets the details, it's not just in brief. But there is a difference, I'm reading, but there is a difference. The former truth depends on itself. In other words, the Prophet's truth are self-dependent. Whereas the latter, the wali's truth, depends upon the former, depends on the Prophet. And is subject to its authority. And this is where Imam, and I'll explain this to you a bit more, this is where Imam al is brilliantly arguing the need for nabuwat even for awliya. Because the wali is nothing without the Nabi. The wali is nothing without the Sunnah. The Prophet ﷺ, when he receives wahi from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly, itself now, his nabuwat itself is a proof that it's true. His nabuwat is itself, it's a proof that it's true. But when a wali receives ilham from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that ilham is not itself a proof that it's true. That wali is not itself, it's a proof that it's true. It's dependent on nabuwat. In other words, his ilham must conform to sunnah and sharia. That's what he's saying. He needs to get the prophetic stamp on his ilham. He needs the stamp of nabuwat and sunnah on that ilham. It's not independent. So it's dependent on, look at the top of 175, depends upon the former and is subject to its authority. And it's circumscribed by Sunnat and Sharia. So the Wali only operates in the world of Sunnat. Cannot go outside of that. Alright? Okay. So we're going to take the first break. This is the easiest letter. This is the easiest one. Inshallah, we're going to take the first break and then we'll meet back. I'm going to cut your break from 20 minutes to 15 minutes. We're going to meet you back in 15 minutes, inshallah, which means... So my clock, if you want to set, I have 11.55 and I will start on the dot. We're going to start at 12.10, inshallah.